This is 30 Wood, a podcast celebrating the 30th anniversary of Fernwood Publishing. In this series, we talk to Fernwood authors about their work, their activism, and why radical publishing is so critical. This is the final episode. We have done 15 episodes, and the idea was that the 15 episodes would stretch over 30 weeks, just like the 30 years of Fernwood Publishing. Now, when we started talking about this, we were bouncing around ideas of all of the different authors we could approach. And awkwardly, of course, you know, my name wasn't there, which was fine. I didn't expect it to be there. But the folks at Burwood thought, okay, let's flip the script on the last episode and someone will interview me. And so that's what this episode is. Fiona Jeffries, one of the handling editors at Fernwood, is interviewing yours truly about the two books that I wrote for Fernwood, but also, like all of the other episodes, what I think about radical publishing, why it's so important, the process of writing, and what is on my to-read pile. Welcome to uh, 30 Wood, Nora Loretto. Oh, today we're 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 uh, uh, switching the script, and uh, Nora has been interviewing uh, Fernwood authors uh, for this podcast, and now uh, Fernwood is interviewing Nora uh, for our final uh, episode of Thirty Wood, and um, we're very excited to to be interviewing her and to be hearing about uh, publishing from. Uh, from the perspective of an author and an activist, organizer, and uh, podcaster of the of the uh, great um, notoriety, we are. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm Fiona. I'm an editor at Fernwood. And uh, Nora, would you like to say hello? Hi, I'm Nora, <laughs> and I am a two-time Fernwood author. Excellent. Um, so we're just going to get into it and talk about publishing and writing and thinking and doing political work in the world today and how these things are all connected. What are you fired up about, Nora, today? Ooh, wow. What a great question. I, um, well, I'm staring down a, a CLC convention, which is coming up uh, by the time people listen to this episode, the convention will likely have come and gone. But labor has been in so much in the news lately that for me, I think that this is this is what I'm really, I would say, excited about right now. And 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 not to say that everything's going perfectly or 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 anything like that, but to see the engagement on labor issues of average people has been really, really exciting. I think that that's probably what I'm really fired up about right now, although maybe after a week of the CLC, I might be a little bit more like, ooh, tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, and what do you think are the most, uh, some of the most interesting labor struggles that the CLC should be talking about and the rest of us should be talking about alongside it? Well, just this past week, so we're recording in the first week of May, and this past week, workers at a Waterloo uh, Starbucks just unionized. And Starbucks workers have been unionizing across the United States, but this is not really something that has come to Canada yet. And so that's really, really exciting. I think that the affordability crisis is something that labor needs to get its head around and and has to stop 
playing the role that is prescribed for it through legislation. So, you know, we we know that that unions have a legal responsibility to represent their workers and to do bargaining on their behalf. And that's all really important. But it's not enough. And it hasn't been enough for a long time. The affordability crisis gives us a moment where we can actually say, whoa, like, what is the role of organizing working people in this country? And what kind of power can we build when we organize working people to confront government structures that seem unmovable and seem callous and seem impossible to influence? Yes, right on. Um, and that and that um, leads me to the sort of related questions, because, I, you know, two of your books, um, your books are, are with with Fernwood are about thinking politically about the present um, kind of crisis points. I think. I mean, that's one way I would describe the two books because they're you know about about uh, different but connected topics, and that's what connects them. Um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your the two books that you've done for Fernwood, and what propelled you to write them? Sure. Yeah. So the first book uh, for Fernwood that I wrote, which is my second book, the first actual book that I wrote was uh, was for the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. It was, it was alternatively published and about the labor movement. And I was thinking in very similar terms when I was thinking about feminism. It was it came about because of a conversation that I had with someone who was, actually works for a different publisher and no longer works for that publisher. Actually, sorry. And who actually has since gone back to work for that publisher. No. <laughs> um, but I, I hadn't really thought about writing a book about feminism uh, at all because I'm, I'm not in the feminist movement uh, as an activist in the way that I'm in other movements as an activist. So I didn't really necessarily feel like it was my place until I started to really think about it, nudged by this individual, um, really think deeply about the problems with the, the the current feminist movement, starting from the premise of there really isn't a feminist movement, which is such a, an interesting contradiction because it's also a moment where feminism is very popular. Like it's hard to find people who would say that they're staunchly anti-feminist unless they're like literal right-wing activists. And so um, this project got going because of the suggestion of this individual and it just got turned down and turned down and turned down. (laughs) Well, at the same time, and I was like very focused on working with this one individual, very focused on that. And at the same time, uh, someone from Firmwood got in touch with me, Fazila Jua. And she was like, hey, love your writing. Have you ever thought about writing a book with us or writing a book, another book? Like, what do you think? And in the back of my mind, I was still going through this process with the other publishers because it had started already. Um, And I was like, oh, wow, it would be so amazing to publish this with Fernwood. But I have to let this process play out because I I don't, you know, at that point, there hadn't been any like, this isn't going to happen. And I was dealing also with 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 left wing publishers. I mean, I wasn't dealing with with uh, mainstream publishers by the by the time it got to the last (laughs) to the last draw. And so when it was clear that it wasn't going to work out, while I was also thinking of what could I pitch to Fernwood, um, all the pieces fell right into place. It was like, okay, so good news. I have a, a proposal that's worked out that has been shopped around um, and not just shopped around, but it's given me a lot of time to think through it. And, and actually, I think that really helped because I had, had I had pitched what I was thinking eight months previous, it probably wouldn't have gone off so well. It would it needed a lot of work. And so that started uh, the process for Take Back the Fight. And I also I always feel like I, I dodged a bullet might be a bit too strong. I think the, you know, the book would have been a different book had I had I not published it with Fernwood and had Fazila not been the editor because she brought so much to the manuscript. She brought so much sense to what I was writing. 
And, you know, it was it was my my crash course in how to write a book, like really like, oh, you need to introduce this idea here and you need to surround these quotes with some sort of context or comment from yourself. It doesn't you can't just drop that in there, and let it stand. You're not writing journalism here. You're writing something that's as long as a book and you need to bring people along longer, you know, and so therefore you have to bring people along differently. So it was a really amazing experience. And um, as we were putting that book to bed, it was, I think, just about to head off to the printers. I had this flash and I was like, oh, my God, I have to write about COVID. I'm one of the few journalists that's staring at this pandemic in the to the level that I was staring at it. And so I whipped up a proposal and I sent it to Fazila and I was like, I know this is nuts. Like, take back the fight isn't even printed yet. But what do you think uh, the folks at Fernwald will think of this? And you folks liked it. And yeah. I, remember the, <laughs> I remember the feedback being like, um, I, I, I had proposed a 24-month project or something, or maybe it was an 18-month project. And then the feedback was, this is great. Do you think we can publish it four months earlier? Right. <laughs> Which, of course, meant, you know, a little bit of more like faster writing and, and faster turnaround times. And honestly, like it worked out so well because had we had had we gone with the plan that I had pitched, uh, the book would have come out six months later. And between, you know, December 2020 and April or, or May 2021, uh, that's when we had the rise of Omicron. And, and really, like, I would say that the pandemic took a completely different tone by the time, like, the spring had come out. And so I was very, very happy that I kind of had that clean break in the pandemic narrative that that the summer kind of dampened on that sorry 2021 and 2022 oh my god I'm a whole year off of where we're talking about <laughs> um, because the the pandemic that comes after where where mass uh, infection becomes like actual mass infection versus just widespread infection uh, that really changes how we interact with COVID and I'm so glad that I didn't have to kind of balance or or, or take on a new era <laughs> in uh, in a book that was really really intensely focused on the first 18 months of, uh, of 2020 and 2021. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, the whole temporality of it is just thinking about like, because, uh, you know, that book is a book about time in so many ways, right? And, and, and books are, and newspapers, like journalism, you know, they're all very different kind, they're operating at very different kinds of tempo, right? And, and, and trying to, Right. Uh, and, and both of the books you're talking about, your books, uh, are about urgent things that are happening in the moment and or the debates are, are uh, you know, in a process of massive uh, change. I mean, feminist politics, that's one, you know, kind of uh, fast, fast moving, changing, highly antagonistic kind of what is the meaning of feminism? What is its role? Or people wanting, you know, anti-feminist movements and so on. And then COVID is, this, is similar in the sense that it's like this unfolding um, crisis. Um, so, I mean, it's not the same in terms of it's like the fact of it, but I think there's a lots of, uh, of, of ways in which the two um, topics are really difficult to write about mm. because because as you're writing things are changing. So, I, and I think a lot of the time, you know, when people write a book, you're actually, you know, you've written half of it, and then you're like, oh, that's what this is about, <laughs> right? Right? Like 
you don't necessarily know because like, you need to write. I mean, what's one of the great things about books is that you have more time and space to explore, but also that means also more time and space to like change your mind about things. So I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the process was writing, uh, of writing those books was like, because you're as a person who's attuned to the political um, and and, you know, cultural debates that are unfolding um, as you're writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's really it was really, really hard. And the feminist book was a polemic and writing a polemic is really, really difficult. <laughs> it's very fraught. Yeah. And um, and this is where Fazila played such an important role, because oftentimes I would say something and she'd be like, sorry, who is saying this? Are you saying this? Is someone else saying this? Is this something that you're applying to all women? Are you applying to white women? Are you applying to, you know, even even a, a part of time or a part of the country? Because things are different. Um, and so right. having that eye was really important. And then also, I mean, <laughs> I remember super well getting the, 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 the edits back from the first draft of the manuscript. And I got them on January 29th, 2020. Okay. And the reason why I know that is because that's the day of the shooting of, uh, of, the, of the mosque in, in St. Foy. And I was just about to leave that morning to get everything ready for what was a very, very big event and, and actually would be the last big event that we'd have in, in, uh, in three years since this year. And I was like, oh, my goodness, of all the days, I'm getting this now. And Fazil and I hadn't worked together. And, um, you know, when you're an editor, you're very careful about your about how you approach someone with your edits, right? Because edits, if someone's very sensitive, it can, like, you know, be really d- tough to hear, like, eh, this is kind of bad, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. And, and so we hadn't worked together like that. And so she sent me, like, the kindest, gentlest, um, we can pull this manuscript out of the fire kind of message. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. the um, the peer review, because it was a peer reviewed book, um, you know, were pretty critical of how I wrote things and what I said. And and I don't remember if they were critical if I left things out, but it, it needed a lot of work and it needed a lot of work from what I first submitted to what then she had edited to then what the comments made from the from the anonymous peer reviewers. And I remember just being like, OK, um, I mean, I'm good with edits and I expected edits. And as long as this book is not so bad that it's not getting published, I can manage anything. But right now is not the right time. <laughs> so I remember yeah. closing, closing the, 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 the document. It must have been 10 o'clock in the morning or something. And I was like, OK, I will deal with this in three days. And, you know, and then got into the process of writing. And I think in that situation, we even changed around chapters in that edit, which is like a pretty significant thing to do if you can think that the book was done by um, April 2020, right? So I'm really changing, like coming up with a new chapter and splitting chapters and thinking through the analysis and does this make sense and what am I missing? Chapter three had actually been, I think, chapter 10. So that's a really big change to the book. So that was, um, it was a ride. <laughs> it was a ride. I had a lot of fun on that ride, but judging by the way that Fazila was talking to me, I, I got the sense that she's had ed- um, writers get comments like that and be like, oh my God, this is the end. Because <laughs> it was pretty intense. That's the benefit of being a journalist too, right? Though, because yes. you're used to it. You know how to respond. Like everybody needs an editor and everybody, you know, or everybody, uh, editors help to, you know, everyone needs an, an extra pair of eyes if you say that. So, and that, oh, totally. and also knowing how to respond to it, that it's not about you. It's about, you know, how to, how to make this better or easier to read. Right. 
That's right. And the clarity. And because it was a polemic, like I also had to be very careful that I wasn't going to say something that someone easily would be like, well, actually, you didn't read this uh, analysis of this important person. Right. So it was very like delicate and um, and it was hard, but it was it, it's it's the that's the best part of writing. Like for me, I love that. And, and, and so it was really wonderful. And I also really just I loved how I could say like, hey, don't worry about it. Like, I'm fine. <laughs> like I, the, the reviewers, the comments are fine. And I mean, like some of one of the comments was like, I remember this so well. It was like, this is a book that criticizes white feminism, but is all about white feminism. Like, it's a white feminist book. And I was like, ooh, that's a big criticism. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so that was that was fun. But and I was also out of my element and and whatever. So um, the the process of rising to the um, the challenge was was a lot, a lot, a lot of fun. It was very fulfilling. And of course, writing that book, I did end up writing uh, the the last little bit, like doing the last bit of editing, writing the forward, fixing up the final parts as the pandemic hit. So trying to also make sure that it was going to sound contemporary in eight months after everything right. had changed. That, that was a huge, huge, huge struggle. So there are parts in the book where you'll see that I talk about the first deaths. I named some of the of the workers in long-term care who had died and that was really important to me to make sure that it, it was not going to be something that would be instantly uh instantly dated right and, right and who knew who knew i mean i was submitting this in april 2020 who knew what uh june 2020 was going to look like let alone today right yeah no kidding spin doctors was totally different it was a book where I was the expert. Like, I mean, there was no other people. Like, feminism is like, there's a million more smart people than me who've been doing a million better things than I have, and I was just trying to bring everything together. Spin Doctors, I literally was one of the the, the experts in Canada writing about this. And that was really difficult because it meant that I had to do all the thinking and I had to do all the analysis. And um, and I worked with Fazila again uh, but the timelines were so tight that I couldn't make mistakes on structure. So of the proposal that I'd submitted in, in August 2020, it was actually the exact same book that came out. Uh, what was really interesting was that I had like a blank chapter knowing that something was going to arise that I'd have to stick in there. And so the proposal had like blank chapter. <laughs> Which, right. which, you know, you can't always get away with. The future, we cannot <laughs> That's know. Right. Yeah. And that chapter turned out to be the chapter on vaccines. Because, of course, in August 2020, I mean, the, the there was no vaccine. And not only was there no vaccine, but it was like, you know, you hoped that the research was going to deliver something and there was really good news. But we were nowhere close to there being a vaccine. So that was a really great um, abil- like way f- to allow myself, you know, to think through something and then add it later on. But otherwise, the proposal was was what it was. And then making sure that the intros and the conclusions and the structure was even all throughout the chapters and the chapters were at the same length, like all of the like the, the editing part of things I had to write into that book because we did not have time for Fazila to be like, oh, your introduction doesn't really do this. You got to fix this. You got, you know, like it was literally like, I need you to focus on the content. The structure has to be as solid as possible. And hard, and what was really hard was my, my writing window was from October until March. And, um, and I can only write about 75% of the story because March, 2021 vaccines were just being unrolled. There was another, we were just exiting the massive wave from the winter, but there was another wave that was coming up in April. 
And um, and I knew that I'd have to add about 25% to the entire book to bring every chapter as up to date as possible by the time it hit the print, the press in, in August of that year. So um, it was a really, it was really technical, very paint by numbers in a certain way, like create the picture myself or with Fazila and then paint exactly what had to go into every spot. And that kind of methodological approach really helped because it meant that um, everything that was in that book had to be in that book. I mean, I blew past the word count, blew past the word count, which you don't want to do, right? And usually when someone says to me, oh, this is just so good, you can't cut anything. I'm like, yeah, the hell I can't. Like, check out how many words I'm about to cut. And I remember sending it to Fazila and I was like, you know, I don't doubt that there's words we can cut, but there's no sections. Like if, we, if we're cutting sections, we're literally talking about, do we cut the section on housing? Do we cut the section on domestic violence? Do we cut the section on, uh, you know, migrant workers? You know, everything was so necessary that it felt impossible to cut anything. And so in the end, the book, you know, the book is really long. It's 135,000 words. Um, but it saved all of that planning saved me because I had a writing schedule that, that meant that I had to write 3000 words a week. I gave myself three weeks off. So two weeks at the holidays, plus maybe another week where I, whatever, just didn't do the 3000 words. And then, um, and then it was a real, um, marathon, get this thing to the finish line, uh, in, in July, 2021. And we did it and we did it. And, and, and again, it was like, you know, one of the real challenges was that we, by then, we had vaccines working at 95% and that the cases had dropped really, really, really low that summer. And I was writing, like, this is, we're done. We're done with the period of mass death. And, you know, of course, then Omicron comes and then the whole game changes in terms of how fast um, and stealthy it it moved across the population. And so the deaths, of course, didn't stop. Um, but the way we interacted with the pandemic changed massively. And um, and you can tell in that writing, I mean, it's a real piece of kind of like historical documentation. This is where we were at that moment. And this is where we were mentally, um, which was so important because, of course, the whole work of politicians after was to erase all of that and to say none of that had actually happened. Well, yeah. And so what would you talk about now? What would you include or update if you were going to write that now, that, write the COVID book now? Well, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I would be no. like, no way. I, I think that the, the book could use an epilogue for sure. And an epilogue is something where I'm more thinking about, like, not so much how would I change any of the analysis, because there's nothing in that book that I would change. I don't think that there's, I mean, I might soften the idea that it would be over. And I never thought the pandemic would be over, over, as in there'd be no COVID, because I, I, there's always been coronaviruses. I figured it would mutate into something that was, you know, as dangerous as any other coronavirus or as the flu, which can be very dangerous, right? But would not be at the same level as, you know, what we were facing March 2020 or, you know, January 2022 or whatever. But um, in an epilogue, I, I I don't know. I would I think I would have to like go on a retreat and think about this for a very, very long time because the way that COVID coverage just stopped in Canada really meant that the narrative disappeared, you know? And so what I was writing against was a narrative. And so how do you write an epilogue where there's no yeah. narrative? Like one way to, one way to do it, which I, I think might be very, very interesting and, you know, I'm always open to doing something like this, uh, would be to look at every chapter was an issue and to, to do a catch up on what happened after this stopped, what happened in this issue, um, to just kind of document it further. But the the only... Yeah, but the only analysis that even is possible to say yeah, all about COVID is that politicians did everything they could to make sure that 
no one remembered it. And and not only that, like they're still clawing back money from from the wage uh, from the CERB. Uh, they still have not clawed back wage subsidy money from the corporations that um, that made a lot of money off of it. Uh, all of the fears around domestic violence, which we knew would come true, have come true and are continuing to come true. So there's a lot of ways to look at it like that. But you know, another way, another book that does need to be written is how the pandemic is a was a transformative moment for for Canada and what it what it turned what it took Canada as and turned it into being. And I think that that is we're still too in the thick of things to really be able to see exactly how things changed. Yeah, I mean, do you, and do you uh, mark the convoy as a as the turning point? That's what it seems to me is when the hmm. when it was like really dropped. Yeah, so that's by the by the political class and the media for the most part. That's a really interesting. Um, it's a really interesting observation. So I actually did write about the anti-vaccine movement and the in the and what I called like the pro-COVID movement, as in the pro-virus movement. Uh, they they feature in that chapter on vaccination, and it was more from a perspective of this is a like as they were and you know continue to be though in a different way a fringe group that's exploiting um, people's fears uh, to try and you know change the narrative around what the vaccines are doing or whatever. And I think that the, the the Freedom Convoy, they they did something right, and I mean strategically correct, in understanding that that moment that they chose, February 2022, was going to be when we would be getting out of the of the holiday wave, right? Of, of course, cases wouldn't go away, but from that huge, huge, huge spike that we had of of the tail of Delta into Omicron and then watching Omicron fall into like a a, a still dangerous, but not a spike kind of level of dangerous um, meant that they were going to win no matter what on the narrative because that was going Uh to be when it was going to happen. We knew that like you could, you could tell it from the year before the exact same thing happened the year before. And, um, and, and not only that people were tired. So there was also a generalized, um, a malaise that they were able to exploit where no left-wing organization looked around and said, people need to get in the streets and have fun and do something silly, like let's organize something. And it, because it happened in in Quebec City at the same time as Carnival, the, the parallels between the two events were really, really striking, really interesting. And um, and I think that they like that was probably a turning point for the governments because there would not be another spike of Omicron like that because it had gone so far and so wide. And there would be not only uh, protection from the from the virus thanks to vaccines, but also protection from the virus because of mass infection, because of of, right. of, of, of collective immunity. Right. And and so um, like unless there was going to be a third, a third totally new kind of uh, variant that was going to treat us in the same way that Omicron did. Um, but we'd already been mass infected by then. <laughs> so, um, you know, once you hit mass infection, then you are going to create uh, some level of, of resistance to it in addition to the vaccines. And I think that that it just happened to be that those two things coincided. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that with the convoy, but that totally makes sense. Like, I mean, in terms of their strategy, how to or like, their, yeah. How like, how did these protests? I mean, at least I mean, for sure, the for sure, the um, Spin Doctor's book, like, you know, writing through a kind of collective traumatic experience and trying to understand it and think about it and help others think about it critically, politically. Um, How, like, how have you developed as a writer through that 
experience of, of writing the book about something that is like history as it's unfolding and, and is particularly a very traumatic, terrible period of history. Mm-hmm. Well, I had to rely on every skill that I had, frankly, like it was it was a challenge. And I at the point of starting the the manuscript for Spin Doctors, I'd been a professional writer for how long? I don't know, 14 years or something. Right. And, and writing longer than that. And so I really did have to draw on not only the technical uh, knowledge that I that I gained from Fazila, from the process of writing Take Back the Fight, um, from also looking back at my first book and seeing what kind of problems in terms of the editing uh, it, it was there, like the structure and the technical side of book writing. Um, and so that was all very, very important. Um, but also, you know, I was writing consistently throughout the pandemic on these issues as well. And so having a keen sense as to like, you know, every chapter needs to have some sort of story that has to relate to some sort of individual thing that the right that the reader might remember even, or maybe they never heard of this, but they can they can maybe um, you know have empathy or or identify with the story that they're reading at the start of every chapter. That was really important, and using those kinds of techniques to make sh- to, to to you know accompany such a, a massive meaty book that's not very fun, not very easy to read uh, was I think really important. Um, I, I, I finished writing Spin Doctors and like I was hoping that the book was was going to be like, you know, huge and like every writer does, like change the way that we talk about certain things. And of course, that wasn't what happened. I mean, it was my second book in a pandemic. <laughs> so there were some limitations. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but it certainly allowed me to also feel very confident. And, and that's not that I need more help feeling confident, but in a media landscape where I'm constantly shut out, it was, it was really important to not rely on other media to be able to have this analysis get out there. Um, because if I was consistently trying to get these articles published in Maclean's or the Globe Mail or even left-wing publications like Passage, it would never have felt like enough. And when I finished Spin Doctors, I was like, I got nothing more to say about this pandemic. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> Completely drained of, yeah, oh, that's great. Why do you think uh, radicals should write books? Oh, I mean, because uh, there's not enough. Uh, there's not enough of us, and um, book writing. Uh, I mean, who wants to read? I, I just read a book uh, by two uh, prominent uh, Canadian um, columnists whose politics are, I mean, kind of obvious. They're conservatives, and the book is so boring. I couldn't even. I'm just looking for stats. Like I was just like, I just need stats, and a right wing person's perspective will be fine on these stats. And I was just like punching myself in the face with how uncompelling and how boring the writing was. And I think that when when you're writing radical politics, like you have to be exciting and you have to be interesting and you have to grab people's attention. And that that is that enriches literature in general, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, radical, like the perspectives of radical people, even if they're put through very mundane topics uh, or very mundane scenarios that are might might be a day to day scenario. um, It's the it's the beauty of what we fight for in this world. And, you know, I, I, I read a lot and I think a lot about uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who I also quote at the start of Spin Doctors, and and the idea of an unengaged life, a life that you're not actually engaged in fighting for something is is worthless. And the idea of an unengaged book is like 100,000 times worse. Like you might as well just throw it into the recycling bin right, right away. So I think that that's why it's really important. And what about for uh, what, like, speaking of reading the book, why should radicals read books? 
the radicals right. I am less I am less of an expert in reading, I have to say. My reading habits are very terrible, but reading allows us to imagine so many different things that that is that might be hard to imagine that we might need help imagining. And if we're practicing uh alternative uh universes and alternative political possibilities and if we're exploring uh, even real political realities but add them to this is how things could be, uh it's through reading that that you you actually can say, oh, my goodness, I never looked at this like that before in my life. You know, uh, there's a there's a special kind of like there's a special kind of craziness that comes with people who can write books, I think. And I'm saying this like on my own behalf. <laughs> and, um, you know, if you're able to, to to put something into words that touches someone in a very in a very special way, in a very deep way, um, like we need the we need the readers to read that. Right. And 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 the, the relationship between writer and reader is so intimate and is so special and also so mysterious because, I mean, I I will not talk to the majority of people that have read my books like that's That's just I mean, you know, and no author will. And, and the more successful you are, the fewer people you're able to talk to. Right. Because yeah. hopefully more and more people are reading your books. And so. Uh, reading, supporting radical publishing, I mean, it is so critical because otherwise these stories just literally don't get told. Like, you know, would it have been possible to to do Take Back the Fight with another publisher? Maybe, maybe, but not not to produce what I produced. That's very, very clear. And um, and to, to never have to back down on criticizing the establishment, on criticizing capitalism, on calling out white supremacy, on naming racism, anti-black racism and, and racism against indigenous people. That was absolutely critical. And I think that radical publishing creates spaces that does pull mainstream publishing closer to a place where people can actually make those kinds of comments uh, in the mainstream. Um, we're seeing a change and and that's and that's wonderful and that's really important. But it's all done. It's all made possible by the readers. Right. Yeah. What and what role did uh, books play in your own political consciousness? Yeah. I mean, I've I, as much as I don't read as much as I should. Uh, of course, I've read. I've read my whole life. I'm a I'm a reader. My father's a was a was a librarian. My mother taught English, and so reading has been very very important to me. Um, it is it it is something that I look to do when I'm looking for to make sense of things. I, I read everything. Spin Doctors was only possible because I read about fifty thousand news articles. All right. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm a I'm a voracious uh, reader of 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 um, of current events. And maybe while I don't read books uh, as much, I'm always reading and always thinking through things. And if it isn't for reading, getting myself out of my own head, I would always be in my own head, and no one would. Would want to read my writing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I'm asking too because I think that books are, you know, like, uh, well, I guess another question I would ask is like, can you name a couple of books that have been important to you politically, like, or transformative to your thinking? Yeah. Well, okay. So, I mean, the first book that meant a lot, a lot, a lot to me was Trainspotting by Irvine Welsh. <laughs> uh-huh. And I read it at a really young age. I think I was 12, <laughs> 12 or 13. Wow. Um, yeah. yeah. And and it just put me into a different place. Like, I mean, I, I really felt like I was like an adult. 
<laughs> and um, and and from there, I, I mean, I was you know reading Hugh McLennan stuff. I love I love Margaret Lawrence's stuff. All that all that was really important for my my understanding of Canadianness and Canadian identity. Um, and, but then, I mean, you know, then I've got other stuff who's who, like Alain de Botton. I love his books, even though I'm sure he is not great for women <laughs> to women based on how he writes and his politics are all not good, <laughs> but I love the way he writes. And so I'm really happy when I pick up one of his books. Um, and then as I say, Sartre, I'm reading, I read so much Sartre because I think it is so, I think existentialism is, is, is the defining, uh, political, uh, framework, theoretical framework of, of, of explaining everything about why society is so messed up. And that's my my real dream is to try and and bring Sartre into uh, into the modern day, uh, especially as it relates to technology and what it's doing to our brains. Um, so that's kind of just a, a small, <laughs> little small sample. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, and it's a great range too. I mean, that, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I think that's a that's a sign of also so you know reading across genres is really important to being um, uh, sharpening your skills at communication. Um, but also, I guess I'm thinking because you said you're a very voracious reader of news and like fast media, what I call it. like books are slow media. Uh, and yes. and that's what makes them, you know, they take a long time to write. They take a long time to read and they take a really long time and many people to produce. Um, yes. Exactly. And so but it's an interesting like it, what's interesting about them is that it is a technology, a communication technology that has has changed very little in like thousands of years of their existence. And yet they, and so in some ways, I think I feel like they're kind of a perfect, like they are a perfect technology in so many ways. And, and so I know I have my opinions about why that is. I mean, I know they're imperfect, but in just in terms of like the difference between like, why read a, why is book reading um, important as opposed to, um, you know, reading social media or reading like the more the fast the you know in our era of fast media and no and it's such a great question too because you know the difference between someone who writes um 60,000 words or 120,000 words or 600 words is is night and day you know I just I just saw a manuscript for a friend of mine who's like writing his first book and it just got submitted and he sent it to me because he wanted some um thoughts on something and he, it was doing a week, so the, my comments couldn't be too profound, right? I was like, "You'll work this out with your editor," and and the way that it was written was written like journalism, but over you know two hundred pages. And I was like, yeah, "This isn't going to work. Like, your editor is going to have to figure out how to fix this, and it'll be fine, and it will be fixed, and you'll be, and it'll be a great book." But there is a huge difference, and. You know, there's a stylistic difference. As I say, you have to have different elements to keep people's attention for so long, which means that you get deeper, you get uh, you get profound, you get to say things that you don't have enough words to say in a shorter piece. But you also are working on it for a long period of time, you know. And as you said earlier, like sometimes you get halfway through and you didn't even know what the book was going to be about. Sure, you've got the proposal and you've got the idea, but as you're going through the research and the literature and what other people have written and the things emerging at the same time, the book can change like a lot. And so in nonfiction, I mean, it is, it is, it's profound, the difference, because you just have so much more time, which also means there's so much more research and so much more thought. And your analysis has to be so profound that it has to bring everything together, which is not, <laughs> not easy. When it comes to uh, fiction, I think the, the really wonderful thing about fiction is short fiction, long fiction, it's actually kind of all the same, right? Like a really great short piece of fiction 
is not the same as a good article. Like a good article is great, but a long in-depth article is always going to be better. But with fiction, if you have a really nice short story, um, that's powerful. It's just that it's your friend for a shorter period of time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what you're saying about the research, the depth about about a book, I mean, part of it, and, and because you have to keep that depth going, right? Like you have to keep giving the readers that because otherwise, you know, people have a choice. They can put it down and go look at social media or they, you know, like there's so many other things uh, that are calling for people's attention. So, and that's kind of what you do. You crave when you read a book is like, you're in there because you're in there for the long haul, right? Like you want to, you want to get the deep, um, the deep analysis and understanding of something, whether, you know, whatever the topic I'm just, I'll just ask you a couple of the, of the more, I guess, uh, the biographical questions is what is your favorite place to write? My favorite place to write, if I'm writing uh, something that's long, is at my desk. I have a very messy desk and I write on a 2009 Mac desktop computer. <laughs> so um, I, I just love that computer and uh, its functionality is, 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 you know, it's been slowly becoming obsolete for about seven years. Um, but I love it. I have to say, though, if I am able to just shut my brain off and do uh, stream of consciousness writing that I find people really, really respond to, or if I'm trying to pull something together in something that's longer. So if I'm working on a book and I'm trying to like come up with that frame in the in the introduction to a chapter or making sure that it's not too heavy on the numbers and my analysis is in there, I love writing on planes. <laughs> I love being writing on what? On planes when I'm flying. Oh, on planes. Yes. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I read about somebody who actually would was when the, he was at the end of his project and in a total desperate state of an end of book writ would book a plane ride to from somewhere in the US to Japan mm. to Tokyo. Yeah. So that he had this long haul flight and would then just turn around and go it's a very expensive way to finish a book. But. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I'm also, I should say, like, I, I went through many, many years of having severe flight anxiety. So I'm not mm. so comfortable in a plane that I want to be there. But I do find, I understand that fully. I can, I could imagine myself someday saying, yeah, you know what? I'm going to drop $4,000 and spend 24 hours plus on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds just like... Horrendous to me, but yeah. that's cool. <laughs> you got to do what you got to do, right? That's right. What, and what about your, what's your favorite place to read and to study? Um, I just have to say, I'll at my desk. I, I have a process that probably is not the best way to write books, but I, I tend to research at the same time as I write. And so... Um, digging into one thing and going to a footnote and finding another thing and getting in deeper and deeper and deeper is, is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite things to do. And, and I love my desk. My desk is in, uh, is in my office, which is at my home and it's perfectly set up though. I mean, it does need to be cleaned and I, I, I love it. Um, but if I was going to, uh, just read in general. Um, I'm, I'm comfortable reading anywhere <laughs> to be honest, as long as long as I'm sitting comfortably, I can read anywhere. Reading all the time. Yeah. Um, and what books are you excited to read right now or feel like you should be reading? No. Are two different questions in one. <laughs> right. And it's so funny because having been able to ask that question now to 14 people in this podcast series and hearing all of the ways that people respond to that question immediately, which is like, oh, my God, hmm, what am I? And they're like, am I going to name that person's book or oh, I can't forget that person's book or whatever. Right? Oh, yeah. 
I know, because it's not the question of like, what do you feel like you should be reading? But I meant in that, in not in that sense, but like you should be reading, but like, because, uh, you know, either because other, other people are reading it or like it's part of the some debate that you think is important to know. About. Totally. So I have um, a whole bunch and let me see if I can rattle through them. I just picked up two new books that I'm I'm trying to get through. And one is Again, I, I'm on a theme. One is Being in Nothingness by Sartre. I found a copy of it. Mm. It's an original uh, English translation. I'm, I'm not tackling him in French, uh, though I could. <laughs> um, but I'm really excited to read uh, Beyond the Introduction, which is quite a long introduction by the translator. And um, that I'm excited about that. I also picked up a biography of Samuel de Champlain from 1904. And so you can imagine how colonial and, and stuffy it is. It's written as well in English. But it's also very, very rich in, in terms of the details uh, from uh, the life of Samuel de Champlain. So I'm very excited to read that. And um, I'm constantly trying to get myself to uh, start a book that someone sent to me and wanted to hear an analysis, which is, I'm not even going to say the title. I don't even know the author. I'm going to forget both. But it's an analysis of how the Arab Spring was funded by the CIA. And it's a a book written in French. Yeah. And so I'm I'm like, going to do that. I'm going to read that book. And then, you know what, when I when I published, uh, or when I like when Take Back the Fight came out, I was like, that was amazing and crazy. And now I'm in the middle of a pandemic and my life sucks because I can't tour this book and I can't do any events. I'm going to buy myself a gift. And so I bought myself a copy of this book by Upton Sinclair called The Brass Check. I've been looking in used bookstores for years for this book. And living in Quebec City means that I can only get to go to used bookstores full of English books when I'm out of town. And The Brass Check is nowhere, 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 nowhere. So I said to myself, like, Okay, you got you, you made a little bit of money off of this book. You're going to buy yourself a gift. I don't buy myself gifts. It's not something I do. But do you know what I decided to do? I looked up online to see if I can find a copy of the brass check. And I found one that was not too expensive that was signed by Upton Sinclair. Wow, so, awesome. <laughs> yes. That's cool. And I have not brought myself to read it. And I will read it. And so that is on, um, that's at the top of my pile. And someday I will have the brain space to read it. Okay, and what is a book you think that everyone should read? This is my final question. There's there's so many really wonderful books, and and the thing about books is that you have to be in the right place at the right time for them to hit, right? Like I don't know if I would suggest to everybody read spin to read um, Train Spotting, right? Like I probably would. I still think it's a great book, but I think you know for 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 left wing people, if you want to look at a book that totally captures the tensions between socialists and communists and the tensions between class and and someone who uh, comes from an upper class who finds himself doing progressive work and uh, trying to slum it with low-class people. (laughs) Uh, Somehow the themes are so perfect they can be completely transposed to this day. I would strongly suggest that you read Oil by Upton Sinclair. And he is one of my favorite writers. And it is such an amazing book. It's a simple book. Uh, It's long. But all of the the debates about communism versus socialism, I mean, that is um, it's there. It's all there. And it's so wonderful. And I um, and I and I think uh, anybody who's left wing should absolutely read it. And uh, and you'll love it. You'll you'll be like, I know this debate. I can't believe this is happening in 1910. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's the Yeah, I should. I should also say, I think that. um there are a couple of books. I think everybody should read. Okay, so I think everybody should read Wind, Sand, and Stars by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Um, and then at the exact same time, read Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell. And I think that the two books are so perfect together because Saint-Exupéry is a wonderful writer, um, but his politics are not great. And you can tell that his politics are not great because he ends Wind, Sand, and Stars with his look at the Spanish 
Civil War. And as you read that alongside Orwell's, you know, memoirs of being in the Spanish Civil War, it, it's it, it's really rich to see the two together. And I love Saint Exupéry. I've read uh, many many of his books. And um, and I especially loved being jolted out of being like, this is really great writing, but then realizing that the politics, uh, the way that Exupery writes uh, is, is very liberal. Like he's a very wealthy, liberal, upper class kind of bourgeois individual. And, um, and, and it just comes all kind of crashing down when you compare his account of the Spanish Civil War to Orwell's. That's just it's just wonderful. If you want to get really nerdy, Wind, Sand and Stars at the same time as Homage to Catalonia. Right. Thank you for uh, thank you for agreeing to do this. <laughs> yeah. No. Thank you. I look forward to listening to it too, and I've really appreciated all your other interviews. They've been they've been great. You've been listening to Fiona Jeffrey's conversation with me, Nora Loretto, as part of the Thirty Wood podcast series. And that's it. That's a wrap. The episodes are over. The series is done. If you missed any of the series before this, please take some time and listen back. 30 Wood is hosted and produced by me, Nora Loretto, with lots of help from the team at Fernwood. 30 Wood is a proud part of the Harbinger Media Network. Check out Harbinger's radical left-wing podcasts at www.harbingermedianetwork.com. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share your favorite episodes. Many intersectional layers to you. Nothing we haven't been through before. They stop me at the border. Call me a foreigner because I question why they slaughter.